The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network show and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. That's a, a newsletter that uh, that looks for opportunities in the junior resource space, and we've had quite a difficult time of it for quite a while, but my sense is that we are nearing a bottom and that uh, we've got a lot of sunshine headed in our way over the next year or so, um, not necessarily sunshine in the general economy, uh, but I think that there is going to be a very bullish uh, time period here for junior gold stocks and for ex- especially those that are producing and have a ca- that are cash flow positive. I should mention that my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Now, Chen has had an excellent newsletter, has had some fantastic calls, has done extremely well in the past. Uh, you have, however, to wait until the next quarter to sign up for Chen's letter. If you wish to do so, you need to put your name on a waiting list, uh, and you can do that by going to uh, miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, and just look for Chen Lin's uh, page there at miningstocks.com, and you can uh, then uh, let your name on a uh, on a list, uh, and then according to availability. Uh, you will be called on uh, and given the opportunity to subscribe at the beginning of the next quarter. Uh, I should like to remind you also that the best place to access this radio show and everything else that I do in the media is at jtaylormedia.com, J-A-Y, taylormedia.com. And you can also follow me on Twitter under the handle jtaylormedia. We do want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I want to also thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Uh, for the first hour of today's show, our sponsors are Timmins Gold, Bravada Gold Corp, Golden Arrow Resources, Miranda Gold, Paramount Gold, Sand Gold, and Uranium Energy Corp. Now, today's show is titled, A Warning from History. Bernanke is destroying people's lives, bank balance sheets, and America's global power. Our guest today, Todd Wood, 
Ellen Brown and Gene Epstein. Uh, Todd Wood is a first timer. Uh, he is, uh, has written a book, an excellent book, a novel that I've just completed reading called Currency. Uh, the novel r- really goes back into time, uh, back to the time of the uh, of the duel between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, uh, and this uh, and it pulls it up to the present time and explains the rise of America and its middle class up till about the 1970s or a current, uh, and it also explains, I think, very well uh, why we are currently in decline, um, largely by fiat because of fiat money. Uh, that uh, really embellished in spades uh, by Ben Bernanke since he's taken over. Alan Greenspan did his part to destroy America as well, in my view, and uh, Bernanke is just stepping on the gas a little harder to uh, accelerate our downward um, spiral. But Wood warns that current economic uh, or current American monetary policy uh, is definitely leading us into economic decline. So we will hear what he has to say and why he why he believes that's true. He will also, uh, I expect, touch on a lot of the geopolitical issues of our day uh, between countries like uh, China and Russia, Iran on the one hand, and uh, Western Europe and the United States on the other. Well, Todd is uh, certainly, as I just mentioned, aware of the pathology of our banking system. Um, uh, that is a topic that I expect we will talk in length with Ellen Brown about, who will return again to us today at about 4 o'clock Eastern Time. Well, we want to ask Ellen, are we all doomed to be Cyprused? That is, are we all being set up to have our the money from our bank accounts taken from us, as happened in Cyprus? Well, according to Ellen and the work that uh, she's done, the research that she's car- uh, carried out, that appears to be the case. So we'll uh, ask Ellen for the evidence of that. She will also talk to us about the Bank of North Dakota, which is owned by the people of that state rather than the international robber barons who own you and me as their servants, I believe. At least that's an editorializing uh, statement, of course, but I believe that to be very much the case and what's happening right now. Well, we'll talk to both uh, Ellen Brown and Todd Wood on those subjects. Also coming by uh, to provide perhaps a little bit of a less uh, radical view and a little more optimism. We always let a little bit of sunshine glare through our windows here uh, and turning hard times into good times with Gene Epstein. Uh, Gene will be here uh, to talk a little bit about uh, well, his latest article uh, in Barron's this past weekend. And also he will be uh, talking uh, about the upcoming uh, guest at the Junto meeting that will take place this coming Thursday uh, on 44th Street, just off of Fifth Avenue uh, in New York City at 7 o'clock. That's this Thursday. Um, also then, at the end of today's show, uh, well, not at the end, at 4.30 approximately, we're going to have... Um, we're going to have with us again Ian McLeod, and uh, well, he has a, a lot of very interesting things to tell us about uh, the gold markets. He believes that we are on the verge of a major breakout uh, in the gold price, and that there is uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of tension, a lot of uh, problems. Uh, in fact, that there just is a shortage of gold to go around uh, in terms uh, relative to the amount of paper. Uh, the futures markets that are on the, uh, the that are out there right now, uh, and uh, certainly there has been a major move towards uh, of gold moving from the west to the east, uh, and um, Mr. McLeod will talk to us about 
the issues and why that is happening and the attitudes of investors as opposed to hoarders, uh, the hoarders being on the west, uh, in the east and the investors of gold being in the, uh, in the western world primarily. And, uh, and why this is setting things up for a major, uh, probably a major breakout, uh, in gold and silver that will probably have even the most ardent gold bugs shaking their head in disbelief. Well, uh, all of this is fine and dandy, but timing, as they say, is everything in the markets. So when is all of this going to happen? Uh, when are we going to have this major breakout in the gold price? I mean, people have been warning us for that, of that for a long, long time. Well, I have to tell you that I have gained a fair amount of confidence uh, in Charles Nanner, uh, and we've had David Gerwitz, his associate, on this show to talk about the work of Charles Nanner. He was a Goldman Sachs trader for some 15 years, highly revered by Goldman Sachs. Initially, uh, a medical doctor who then started to um, started to understand and see cycles in nature and then in markets, uh, and uh, uses mathematical models. Uh, uses um, well, he's been described. Uh, as a walking a logarithm, uh, he uses cycles and a host of other uh, other um, technical uh, tools to help him pick bottoms and tops and of cycles. Uh, and from what I've been seeing, he's doing a remarkable job. I've gained enough confidence in what he has to say to start doing some nibbling and some trading of my own in my own account. Uh, and so far, so good. Uh, we've done extremely. Uh, very well, percentage-wise, so far. Um, but Charles Nanner is a brilliant, um, a brilliant analyst, a brilliant uh, analyst of the markets. And um, what I like about him uh, is, I think he's very humble in his own way, in the sense that he realizes that he doesn't have the answers and he can't figure it out. But he sees the pa- the patterns in nature and in the markets that have uh, that he has been able to latch onto and use. Uh, to earn a lot of money for his clients. Uh, he is, uh, advises a lot of different hedge funds. Well, with regard to gold and silver, what is Charles Nanner saying right now? Well, he's saying, essentially, and let me just quote what he said in this Monday's letter, that he sends out a letter Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, sends out something on Sunday evening as well uh, with charts. But he said, quote, We are watching closely since, uh, since we feel that metals are bottoming. The short-term cycle low stopped the weakness, but we want to wait for a better cycle low in June. Okay, so June is what he's looking for. Uh, that is when he believes we're going to see a most opportune time to uh, turn more aggressive in the gold markets. He uh, covers a host of different markets, lots of different markets. For example, he commented on the S&P and NASDAQ. He thinks that we are very near the upside uh, for the major markets in the U.S. Uh, he thinks we'll have a meaningful decline and then another bo- rebound in the second half of the year, and then we're going to see some really serious weakness later on. He is calling for a 5,000 number uh, on on the Dow uh, over the next um uh, over the next couple of years. Uh, well, I am really looking at this as an opportunity. I have kept, personally kept a fair amount of cash in my IRA account. Uh, I have actually taken some losses on some gold stocks because I want to have cash for the time to more aggressively buy in, and I think that time is coming very closely. Some of our sponsors, I think, look extremely good. Uh, the top of the list in terms of uh, buying right now, uh, for me, would be Timmons Gold, uh, followed by Sand Gold, which I think is in the process of 
of a turnaround those uh, because I am focusing more on the producers, the companies that can produce uh, gold uh, at a profit and generate cash flow and grow organically as opposed to those that have to go out in a very soft market and raise cash and raise capital to put holes in the ground as the exploration companies uh, tend to have to do. But there are some excellent prospects in the exploration side of things as well. And, of course, I do talk about this every week in my newsletter. And you can subscribe to Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Again, go to miningstocks.com or you can call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. Well, we do have to go to a break now. Uh, but when we come back, uh, Gene Epstein will be with us. He uh, writes a, a, an excellent column for Barron's uh, almost every week. And we're going to talk to Gene about his latest views as well as the upcoming uh, Junto, the New York City Junto meetings, uh, the meeting that will be held this Thursday in Midtown uh, Manhattan. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Gene Epstein. business you'll find the experts here voice america business network windfall profits happen frequently in gold exploration stocks but the risk of losses are also common miranda gold enhances prospects of shareholder gains by combining the intellectual capital of geologists mine finders ken cunningham and joe herbert with other people's hard dollars in search for elephant-sized gold deposits in politically safe places like Nevada and Columbia. That keeps shareholder dilution to a minimum, so when discoveries are made, major gains are possible. For more, go to MirandaGold.com. Bravada Gold Corporation controls 18 exploration and development properties covering nearly 50 square miles in Nevada's well-known gold trends. Its flagship Wind Mountain Gold Silver Project is 100% owned and had an independent updated resource estimate and positive preliminary economic assessment in early 2012. This past September, Bravada signed an agreement with Argonaut Gold to further explore and develop Wind Mountain. For further information, please visit bravadagold.com. Attention mining investors, Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm always happy to welcome Gene Epstein, who writes the Economic Beat column 
on Barron's, uh, for Barron's, uh, almost every week. Gene is uh, here uh, to provide some economic insights, some macroeconomic insights, which I think he is really uh, provides some great uh, insights in that regard in Barron's every week and also on this show from uh, at least once a month he comes on. But he's also here to talk to us about the New York City Junto meeting that is held the first Thursday of every month uh, in Midtown Manhattan. Specifically, it is at the uh, General Society Library, 20 West 44th Street between 5th and 6th Avenues in New York City. That's very near Grand Central, very easy to get to if you're in and around Manhattan. So I hope all of you who live close to this, uh, to Manhattan, uh, try to find your way in there because we have some very interesting people that attend and always an interesting, stimulating, intellectually stimulating speaker. We should also mention, as Gene does very often, that Victor Niederhofer is the person who makes this possible. It, it is a free event. You don't have to pay a dime to come in. You can just walk in off the street and uh, and listen to the lecture. Uh, and so it is something that I try to do each and every month. I do expect to be there this Thursday. But now enough about my babbling. Welcome, Gene. It's really good to have you with me again. Good to be back. And uh, let me add uh, to the uh, details that you set forth about Junto. Uh, the meeting starts at 7.30. speaker goes on at 8. But uh, interaction and discussion with the speaker is very much encouraged. That goes on from about 8 to 10. And so uh, almost anybody who comes can have their say and can uh, talk to the speaker afterwards. And so it's a very open environment. There's so many events around town that are uh, not libertarian and then the handful that are libertarian are often exclusive uh, and uh, don't permit the public. So that's why I'm proud to be running uh, Junto, uh, the monthly meeting, open to all. And you're doing a great job, Gene. I must say that. You've taken over now. How long has it been since you started heading this meeting up? It's uh, well, been actually started, several months. started in October, and so yeah. uh, it's, it's now been a half a year, and uh, I very much enjoy it. I, and I very much enjoy it as an attendee. One of the things that I really do enjoy is that it does attract a lot of very smart people, a lot of very well-educated people, and uh, the discourse, the back and forth, the uh, disagreements and the discussions are always kept civil, and they're, I think, very enlightening and stimulating. So it is something uh, I have really come to enjoy, even more so since you've taken over uh, and headed that up. And also, uh, we do want to thank Victor Niederhofer, because if it weren't for him, we wouldn't have this Events. So, way, in any event, to, talk to us about say, the guest this week, C. Bradley Thompson, okay, and uh, what's he going to talk to us about, Gene? I want to talk about C. Bradley Thompson, the guy who's going to be speaking, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, I do want to tell you that uh, I've been promoting Vic Niederhofer too much as a philanthropist, and he tells me I better cool it on that, uh, oh. because he's, he's getting approached by people who, uh, who want him to donate to this cause and that cause, oh, so he okay. wants a little less publicity. Uh, let's just promote him as a very colorful dresser and one of the ten greatest Jewish athletes who ever lived, both of which are valid. <laughs> okay. All right, let's do that. The, the uh, in, in any event. Um, but anyway, let's get to Brad Thompson. Let's, let's Brad talk Thompson about C. Bradley Thompson. Brad Thompson is going to be the speaker, and he chose to speak on a provocative topic on which he's working. He's a bit of a polymath. He did a well-regarded book on John Adams, another book that was a kind of a philosophical and practical attack on neoconservatism. Uh, in this particular evening, he wants to speak uh, about the case for uh, getting government out of the schools 
altogether. A fairly provocative case, since not all libertarians completely agree with that view. I myself am very favorably disposed. I think poor people, as well as rich people, and even impoverished people, would get much better educated if we got the the, uh, the government out of the schools. I thought I was the first person who, who told young people, don't let school get in the way of your education. But then mm. I learned, uh, to my pleasure, that Mark Twain had said it before me. Uh, okay, well, you're in pretty good company. Uh, I just a quote here that I picked up from C. Bradley Thompson. Uh, he said, I begin with my conclusion. The public school system is the most immoral and corrupt institution in the United States of America today, and it should be abolished. That statement, which I fully agree with, I'm just saying that I do fully, I do basically fully agree with, but that was what uh, C. Bradley Thompson was called the public school system, the most immoral and corrupt institution in the United States of America. Well, that's going some, it seems to me. Gene, I could think of a couple of other suspects as well. Well, absolutely, and I hope you get up and tell uh, Brad Thompson exactly that, that he's overstating his case. Uh, we have, again, have a very interactive uh, time at Junto, and I hope others engage him as well. Uh, I, I, will, I will indulge him in that little bit of hyperbole. Uh, I remember when I was a kid and enrolled in school at the age of public school at the age of five and six, I literally believed that school was a place where uh, uh, grown-ups yelled at you and where they marched you around. I actually had no clue, being a very naive kid, that it had anything to do with actually, with learning something. Uh, <laughs> but eventually I thought, well, I guess that is their intent. But uh, I, uh, I guess because I was shaped that way, I'm favorably disposed to Brad Thompson's view. But he's exaggerating. Well, I think well he's certainly, you know, him. and uh, it, it seems to me that what we have with the state owning and running schools yeah. is you're going to have an indoctrination process as well, probably. Oh, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, if you want to, I mean, it, it isn't even just indoctrination on the on the high school and 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 the grade school level to to demonstrate to us that of course our government does no wrong or if it ever makes a mistake, it's only the cost of good intentions. Uh, it's even as well on the college level. As an economist, if you, I, I have to tell you that if you look at what the mainstream historians write about uh, the U.S. economy or what you see in the textbooks, both on the high school and college level, it's really pure Marxism. That's a bit of a hyperbole as well. But it uh, it really is all about how uh, capitalism was evil, the government stepped in and righted wrongs, uh, and uh, and that's it. And uh, someday you may, you mentioned uh, talking about books. Uh, I would love to talk about some real history books uh, that get the story right about uh, American capitalism and its history. Oh, me? Well, well, let's do it sometime, Gene. Let's let's have you on to talk about that because I agree with you that uh, that it's pu- well again hyperbole, support, uh, of course, but but pure Marxism. I mean, what is Keynesian? Well, maybe I've made the case that Keynesianism is Marxism light. I don't know. But oh well, absolutely. I mean, can, I mean, it, it's it's it's. Marxism light is actually a, a very judicious way to put it because, uh, in fact, you know, Keynes uh, heavily endorsed uh, a book about the Soviet Union by uh, Beatrice and Sidney Webb, who are friends of his. Uh, they promoted the Soviet Union. He delivered a radio address saying, this is the book you've got to read. And what's interesting is that Keynes initially objected to Marxism because he naively thought 
that that uh, that Marxism really was all about the rule of the proletariat. And being a natural aristocrat and snob, he hated that idea. Uh-huh. But in his radio address about the webs, he said, "Oh my God, they, that what they're really revealing to us is that this is a society run by experts and intellectuals and technocrats like me." And uh, and that's what he loved uh, to contemplate. He also, by the way, uh, that same year uh, promoted uh, in a German uh, introduction to his book, uh, uh, The General Theory, uh, an edition uh, published in Nazi Germany, in which he specifically said that his theories were most adaptable to totalitarianism, the Nazis to the National Socialism that was being practiced in Germany. So indeed, he was uh, very, very favorably disposed toward uh, toward Marxism, only objected to it because he thought that it would involve the proletariat. Once he learned that, he fell in love with it. Gene, we've only got a couple of minutes left, and I, I just, uh, I guess I didn't know which way to go with this because there'd sure. be so much more I'd like to talk to you about along those lines. Mm-hmm. But I do want to talk to you about your latest uh, article. Um, you are talking about in the economic beat, uh, the private sector must step on the gas. Yeah. Uh, in two minutes, tell us uh, what that article's about and what your well, thesis uh, is there. The private sector has to some degree already stepped on the gas. Uh, the, uh, the headline uh, GDP uh, growth number in the first quarter was an annualized 2.5%, but that uh, 2.5% was weighed uh, down uh, by the continuing downsizing of government, and especially on the federal level. Mm-hmm. Uh, the private sector gross domestic product rose at a more, much more respectable 3.3%, indicating that the downsizing of government, at least so far, there's been no evidence that that has had any collateral damage on the private sector. I wouldn't say the 3.3% is any great shakes, but it does indicate a reasonably uh, robust private sector about which I'm somewhat worried. Uh, but I think that it's conceivable uh, that investment, if investment picks up, uh, which could happen, uh, then the private sector will eke out uh, reasonable growth uh, over the next uh, year or so. Uh, I have fears about, uh, about a coming uh, downturn. Uh, I don't believe that the housing expansion is very healthy. Uh, yeah, I would agree. Gene, yeah. you know, unfortunately, we're out of time, sure. and I, I shortchanged you again. We're going to have to have you on for a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. We do have to go to our break uh, so we can get everything in this hour. Uh, sure. Thank you very much for coming on with us, folks. Uh, come see Gene and myself and the speaker, New York City Junto at 20 West 44th Street, 730 this mm-hmm. week, this Thursday. Uh, mm-hmm. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back after the commercial break with Todd Wood. A very interesting discussion here about his book called Currency. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Thanks again. Bye-bye. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. 
Fairmont Gold is a U.S.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce advanced-stage gold and silver projects in the mining-friendly jurisdictions of Nevada and northern Mexico, backed by a strategic investor and a strong balance sheet. An experienced management team has completed preliminary economic assessments on both projects, showing robust economics and immense potential for increasing ounces and mine life. For more information, go to ParamountGold.com or follow on Twitter, PZG News. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time Todd Wood. Todd is a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy. He has been an aeronautical engineer and an Air Force pilot and flew over the 20th Special Operations Squadron that's, uh, that started Desert Storm. In 1991 to 1994, he was active in classified missions in support of the counterterrorism under the control of the National Command Authority and deployed throughout the world. In 1994, Todd an invest, uh, joined an investment bank. During the second career, he became highly knowledgeable in emerging markets and fixed income and traveled a great deal internationally with a focus on the Caribbean. He became acutely aware of the consequences of economic decisions and their effect on national and economic security. However, Todd's love of storytelling made him leave the financial business in 2011 to write. His economic thriller, Currency, was published in December 2011. Once he began typing, he never stopped. He has been uh, published uh, in the Armed Forces Journal and now lives in a farm in Connecticut. Welcome, Todd, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thank you, Jay. I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for having me. Well, you have a, a very, very interesting background, to say the least. Um, you, as a military officer, I presume that you're required to take an oath. I've never been in the military, so uh, forgive me if I'm asking some naive questions. But was your oath of office that you took um, to obey the commander-in-chief, or first and foremost, or the Constitution of the United States? Um, well, obviously the Constitution, I mean, part of the oath is that you will protect the Constitution from enemies foreign and domestic. So uh, that is, uh, I don't, I can't remember, I don't think the Commander-in-Chief is in the oath, if okay. I remember correctly. Okay, so it is the Constitution of the United States, um, and I, yes. I suppose that some people may may see them as one and the same. But the reason I start this conversation, Todd, with that question is that we had a few weeks back a, a very interesting person on the show named James Garrow. He's a respected human rights activist who's been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, and he was the founder of something called the Pink Pagoda Girls. It was involved with getting, uh, you know, saving the lives of, of young girls in China who would have been done away with because of the one-child policy. In any event, uh, mm -hmm. Garrow, Garrow was recently reported, um, uh, he recently reported by way of a YouTube video that went viral that the current administration is requiring from its top military leaders that they will be willing uh, to fire on American citizens if asked by the commander-in-chief to do so or the executive branch of the government to do so. And um, 
And he says that this information was given to him by a top military leader. Well, in light of President Obama's um, now well-known policy of using drones to kill American citizens without a trial, uh, you know, I'm inclined to believe that what Dr. Garrow is saying might be possible. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, that would be a, a hard one to swallow. You know, I've been out of the military since almost 20 years now. So, but I, I still have friends. The guys I flew with uh, are now one and two, three-star generals. So it's. Uh, I'll have to ask them about that. Although they probably wouldn't discuss it. But sure, uh, that would be a hard one to swallow. I don't. I don't think I. You know, you. You. At the end of the day, you as an officer are bound by the UCMJ to only follow legal orders, lawful orders. So mm-hmm. you and you have a responsibility to not follow unlawful orders. Uh, hence, you know, the Nuremberg trials, etc. So that would be a hard one. Yeah, it would be uh, very difficult I would think because certainly in the military uh you you certainly for the military to work, you have to carry out the orders of your commanding officer. So uh, it would uh, it would be difficult, but of course there are sinister views of of this, and of course raises questions and issues. Uh, but let's get to your book, uh, Currency. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the plot of your novel? Very interesting in the way it starts out. Um, but but tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, sure. Well. Uh, you know, I, I had the military background, and then I, I went to Wall Street and, and uh, started trading and really got involved in the fixed income market. And over time, you know, I had a good uh, awareness. I had a top secret clearance, so I understood the military threats to this country. But over time, I be- started to become aware that there are other threats, and those can be primarily economic. And, uh, you know, we'd have countries come to us wanting to sell bonds for them, and there'd be no buyers. There are buyers at a high interest rate. So I, I became... Uh, you know, I guess motivated to to write something that's entertaining that people would really enjoy reading, but definitely discuss these issues and and bring them to you know in a layman's way to people. And so the currency is historical fiction. It starts uh, a long time ago and ends up three years in the future. It was three years then. Now it's now it's only two. But uh, it, it does discuss really what happens if the U.S. does not get its debt under control, what that could lead to. Uh, there, you know, there's Captain Kidd with the gold, there's Alexander Hamilton, there's Aaron Burr, there's a lot of historical fiction, but it, it does jump into the future. Well, uh, David Stockman recently wrote, just concluded, just finished writing his book, uh, The Great Deformation, and uh, uh, I believe David's view is that it's almost impossible for us now to get our debt in order um, because we are, of course, we are going into debt. What I see this chart that shows an exponential growth in total U.S. dollar debt, not just government debt, but debt throughout our whole economy. At the same time, this same chart shows the growth of GDP, which is a linear, sort of a linear growth, but very slow. But debt growth is going exponential, it seems. Um, how do we get this under control? Well, you know, I get asked, I do a lot of speaking uh, around the country on the issue of economic and military security and the connection between the two. Mm-hmm. And I get asked that question all the time. And, and uh, you know, a lot of times I don't want to anger half the room, so I try to keep it apolitical. But I think the two things, obviously, that have to be done is, one, there's a saying, if you're in a hole and you want to get out, stop digging. Right. So we have to stop spending money we don't have. We're borrowing 45 cents of every dollar we spend and plan to be that way for a decade or more, and that's just unsustainable. And second is we have to grow the economy and create more people that 
create transactions that you know conduct commerce that pay more taxes. I mean, that's the only way out of it I see. Mm-hmm. And yet, um, of course, we're stuck here, aren't we? Because um, it is clear that the Keynesians um, are, are partially correct, at least, and that if we were to start austerity right away, it would be an extremely painful experience, would it not? I, I think that's true, but, you know, I get that question or argument all the time as well, and my response is wait 10 years and see how painful it'll be because, uh, you know, we have to take pain. You know, that's the problem. Nobody wants to take the pain. They just want to keep spending. Look at what's going on in Europe. I mean, we're headed down that road, wait. and, you know, we're going to have riots in the streets over people if they don't get their benefits and their free stuff, and it's just it's got to stop. But There is no other way around it. We cannot... We have to take the pain now in order to survive as a nation, in my opinion, because I think that this is the most critical problem this nation has ever faced, bar the Civil War, bar World War II and the Nazis, because this can destroy us overnight, and people don't understand that. Internally, uh, it's destroying us from within. I think it was President Eisenhower that warned about, certainly warned about the military-industrial complex and becoming too large, and and uh, you know how that could be an enemy and how we could be destroyed from within. Uh, certainly seems to be what's taking place. And yet, you know, when I turn on Bloomberg here in New York, when I turn on um, CNBC and so forth, there is sort of this sense or this belief that. Well, we're having a slow recovery, but basically we're coming out of it. Do you see that? Uh, you know, I think that there is a wet blanket over this country and the economy right now. Think about it if you're a small businessman, which I am, and you you, mm-hmm. you don't know what your taxes are going to be. You don't know what your energy costs are going to be. You don't know what your health care costs are going to be. Mm-hmm. Why in the world would you go hire somebody or spend money to build a new plant? There's just too much uncertainty, and that is destroying uh, the recovery if there was one. And, uh, you know, that's my fear is that we are just not going to – you know, the American economy is resilient. It's deep. It's broad. It can recover, um, but you have to let it recover, and that's what I think the problem is. Well, that uh, certainly reflects a comment that Ron Paul made on this uh, on this show. He said one time, he said, "If the American people are free, uh, the economy will recover. If we're not free, uh, then we'll have a hard time of it." And it certainly seems to be the case. But if we are going to borrow forty-five cents of every dollar we spend, it seems to me that we are handing an awful lot of power over to to other people and i i think a lot of that borrowing is coming from overseas or at least it had been now perhaps now uh, more of it is just coming from money that the fed is printing to buy our debt what is your sense of yeah. what's going on now well the fed is buying 61% of the debt that we issue every year the last statistic i saw um, and you know but we are borrowing money from people who are definitely competitors economically who may not like us very much and could be competitors militarily and, you know, this has happened before. I mean, the, the Roman Empire, history repeats itself. You know, Ro- the Romans destroyed their, devalued their currency, and, and that's what led to their downfall. The Spanish Empire, the same thing. The British after World War II. You know, World War I with the Weimar Republic gave Hitler an opening when they debased the currency and destroyed their economy. So th- this has all, you know, been done before. And the, the thing that bothers me is that we are keeping rates low by the Fed buying all this debt. So we're borrowing money basically for free on our, you know, I don't know what our duration is, maybe around five to seven years on the U.S. bond portfolio. And so you're borrowing at less than 1%. That's free money. Uh, if we get an interest rate shock, one, one, two, three, four, five percent 
you know, which could happen if, say, the Chinese wake up one morning and say, we don't want any more of your debt. I mean, mm-hmm. the markets, the rates could spike. You know, there's a saying on Wall Street that rates are low until they're not. And, and you don't know when that's going to happen. And that could just really hit this economy heavily. And that's what I'm talking about is destroying us really quickly if we don't get our act together. We can't service that debt on $20 trillion. Yeah, and if I, I would imagine that uh, if, say, the Chinese were to suddenly pull away, I think probably they've been decreasing their um, their uh, their portfolio of U.S. dollar denominated assets. But uh, if they were to pull away suddenly, it would certainly shake confidence in the dollar. Then I would guess uh, on Wall Street. Well, that's the other issue: is the the status of the dollar as a reserve currency. You know, since Bretton Woods after World War II. And it lessened somewhat as after Nixon took us off the gold standard. But, you know, trade is conducted in dollars globally. And you're starting to see that change. And, you know, Australia and China decided last week or two weeks ago to start trading directly with their own currencies. And if the dollar loses that reserve bid, if it loses that demand, yes, you could see a really high devaluation of the dollar. You know, the, right now there's not really anywhere else for people to go. But, you know, that could change in a period of years. It, uh, you're bringing that issue up about uh, about Australia and China. That's that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. I think it was some time ago that Japan had made a similar agreement or started to with China, and then this issue of the islands, uh, the disputed islands, arose and mm-hmm. sort of seemed mm-hmm. to drive a wedge between China and Japan. Do you think that might have been intentional on the part of the CIA or somebody, possibly, to 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 drive them? Well, apart? you know, it, it's 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 possible, but you know what I took out of that, and you can go Google this. In September of last year, there was a Chinese general who put out a statement, and you know the Japanese debt to GDP ratio is much worse than ours. It's over two hundred percent. You know ours is plus one hundred, and they just are printing money like crazy to revive their economy, but mm-hmm. they won't restructure their labor market, so it'll never happen. But they, the Chinese put out a statement in September saying, if you don't give us what we want over these islands politically and, and territorially, we're going to destroy your economy through your bond market because of oh. your debt. So this is already happening. I mean, just not to us yet. Oh, interesting. So uh, it's out there. That is that is really interesting. Um, well, it's, it seems to me, you know, the United States, I guess you would know much more about this as an ex-military man than I, but it seems to me that the United States certainly has a military that is second to none at this point in time, right? That is true, but that's a static, you know, measurement and things are changing rapidly. You know, my concern as a military, you know, study student back at the academy, you learn that militaries tend to train and equip to fight the last war. And, you know, I'm a special operator, so I, I'm very proud of what we did after 9-11 by building up our special operations forces in my ex Commander, my ex-wing commander just retired as chief of staff of the Air Force, General Schwartz, and so that the special operations has come a long way. But I fear that we are neglecting and looking away from our conventional forces, and I think that's where the next conflict could come. I mean, look at our our Air Force is flying decades-old equipment. Uh, you know, we bought a hundred and something F-22s. I mean, how long is that going to last in a real conflict? Uh, you know, our Navy is shrinking. The Chinese are launching a blue water Navy or attempting to, and yes, they're a ways away, but they only have to be really good once. Uh, you know, an asymmetric warfare works, and I, I write about that in the book. Well, well, okay, so as you say, it's static, and here's the issue then getting back to the economics. You mentioned 
uh, you know, one of the things that, well, you just talked about how we could be competing, for, you know, with people, uh, with people like the Chinese, presumably the Russians, mm-hmm. others mm-hmm. in the world that are probably envious of raw materials that are uh, to be mm-hmm. gotten in Africa and elsewhere. Um, yes. Why? Why would the Chinese continue to buy our treasuries if, in fact, they're helping to finance our military that that is competing with them? Well, they do need us to some extent um, to keep their export economy going. So there is definitely an agenda and a need there. Mm-hmm. Um, my point is, you know, look at what they've done cyber-wise over the last, you know, decade. I mean, they're, they're, you could make a case that they are committing acts of war against us now. So my whole point is that if they need to use this economic weapon and so it hurts their economy in the short run, they would definitely use it. And why are we giving them this weapon? Uh, that is what I'm trying to raise. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just so much in your book, and I, I just basically scratched the surface, didn't read through it the way I wanted, but there's, it really is, I should tell our listeners, uh, it's a novel, currency, and it's, uh, it's just, it's an entertaining read, I must say. Starts out with the, uh, you know, with the historical event of the duel between Adam Burr and Alexander Hamilton. Uh, that is uh, in the prologue to the book. Why did you start out with that historical event? Well, um, two reasons. One, I'm related to Aaron Burr. He's a, my great aunt was a Burr. And huh. so I've always had that in the back of my mind would make a great, you know, scene for a novel. So, and the second thing is that traveling Carib- in the Caribbean extensively, I did a lot of business with the Eastern Caribbean Central Bank in St. Kitts and Nevis, and Alexander Hamilton was born in Nevis before he came to the United States. He was a naturalized citizen. So those two events, uh, you know, just kind of came together. And also he's buried down at Trinity Church in New York City near yes. Wall Street. Um, and uh, the other character, Captain William Kidd, who uh, is in the book as well, bought a pew at that church. So all of it kind of came together uh, by circumstance. Maybe uh, you could refresh our memories, or perhaps for Americans that aren't aware, it seems as though we don't really study history as we should these days uh, in our educational uh, process. Uh, but tell us uh, what, why the duel between the two men, and why, and you know, how, why, what was so severe that they had to settle it in that manner? Well, uh, Burr had always felt that he was uh, dissed, if you will, to, to use a colloquialism of sure. today, uh, by Washington. He didn't feel like he got his due for his bravery, which he was a very brave officer in the Revolutionary War. He uh, ended up, I guess, competing with Jefferson for the presidency and became vice president instead. Then he, uh, you know, him, Burr and Hamilton were friends early on, but they became political adversaries. Uh, you know, Burr was a Federalist, and, or excuse me, Hamilton was a Federalist, and, and Burr was in the the opposite camp, and they just became there just became this animosity between them over time. And there was an event where Hamilton actually disgraced his family by having a long term affair with this woman, which came to light, and her the, the husband of the woman blackmailed Hamilton for money and other things. Burr confronted him, uh, and then Hamilton started saying really bad things about Burr, uh, how despicable he was, and so uh, you know he ch- Burr challenged him to a duel and killed him. Yeah, sort of uh, hard to imagine that sort of thing happening today, but I guess uh, at least in broad daylight, as as it did then, and uh, people being aware that it was going to happen, and 
but but in any event, it seems interesting because, of course, this whole Hamiltonian uh, issue. Let's say that these two men were around today. How do you think mm-hmm. they would see the world? Uh, uh, how would they see policy, American policy? Let's say uh, economic policy as well as um, military policy. Could could these gentlemen have seen the United States uh, ever becoming a uh, an empire rather than a republic as we are today? Uh, I think that they definitely saw the future of America. I mean, the brilliance of the system they laid out is just incredible uh, to, you know, have the separation of powers. And I think the concern they would have today is that, you know, certain parts of our government have too much power and the states have lost a lot of power. You know, Hamilton did want a strong central government, but I don't think he would be happy with the size of it's become today. And, uh, you know, I I don't remember the, the exact political philosophy of Burr as much as I did study Hamilton, so mm-hmm. I think I could comment on him more, but um, I, I think they'd be shocked as to what is happening with the central government, you know, just abusing its power, in my opinion. It seems to me, and I'd like to know your opinion of this, that 1971, when Nixon removed us from the gold, the international gold standard, that that really opened the floodgates for a lot of financial promiscuity that's followed. Uh, I can see Certainly, the growth in total debt started to grow very, very rapidly, not in a linear fashion, but mm-hmm. almost exponentially. I recall, because I am 66 years old, I recall that time, mm-hmm. August 1971, when Nixon did that. I remember that we, you know, we had the Vietnam War, we had socialism under mm-hmm. Lyndon Johnson. Uh, neither mm-hmm. Johnson nor Nixon wanted to tell the American people they had to pay for it, so we issued debt. De Gaulle said, I don't want your dollars anymore, give me, uh, give me gold as uh, $35. Uh, gives me an ounce of gold. I'm going to send you your dollars, and you send me your gold. And there was a drain on the treasury. Um, do you see that as a pivotal point in our history, 1971? Oh yes, I do. And I think the real lesson to be learned there is that it allowed our government to print as much money as it wanted to buy votes to stay in power. And I think you're seeing that happen on a uh, on steroids right now. Obviously. <laughs> Um, I think there's an agenda with this government, and it's definitely not the economic health of the American, you know, economy. You know, I do a lot of business in Russia. I travel there often, and you know, Putin said recently that either Obama is extremely naive and ignorant about economics, or he's purposely trying to destroy the U.S. economy. So I just think he has a different agenda, and it's not economic growth. It would seem so, uh, which uh, which raises an issue. I'm trying to remember now. We had just a week or two ago uh, a fellow on here that was talking about a new treaty that Obama is trying to push through, and it has to do with, I think it's called the Asian, I'm looking for the name of it, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, and we had Curtis Ellis, actually, who was the gentleman that was on this show. He was a, a producer for Lou Dobbs. And he's talking about this initiative, which has a whole host of countries like Japan, Canada, Mexico, but several Asian countries. It would come under one umbrella that would basically make trade law and uh, and tax law within the United States take away a great deal of sovereignty uh, from the U.S. It seems as though they're trying to push this thing through 
without people realizing it and understanding what it's all about. But it's billed as another. It's it is being trying. It is being sold as another bit of trade uh, trade bill that would, of course, as all these legislations are supposedly good for us, right? It's all would never be uh, anything sinister. It's all we we must realize that our that our leaders are all caring, loving human beings that are really concerned about their citizens that vote for them. But do you have any uh, any knowledge of this Trans-Pacific Partnership issue? I have not um, studied that. I, I, I can't okay. really comment on okay, it. It fair doesn't enough. surprise me. Yeah, but, fair uh, enough. But, uh, it doesn't but surprise it, me. But, but, I mean, I'm just thinking in terms, as you say, that he may have another agenda mm-hmm. other than U.S. growth, and there are certainly other people that feel that way as well. But that's a very interesting uh, interesting comment from, from Putin. Uh, it seems to me that what's setting up now is – a couple of major geopolitical sides, if you will, between certainly Russia and China, Iran probably, Venezuela in our in our hemisphere, Ecuador, some of the lesser companies, countries, maybe Bolivia. Uh, and then on the West, you've got, of course, the United States and, and Europe and probably Japan thrown in there as well. Um, it seems to me, though, that with Europe, in the kind of dire straits they're in, and, the, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Bernanke sending two... Uh, $2 trillion over to Europe not that long ago, a year ago or so, to try to keep their, keep them solvent. Uh, it seems to me that what we've got are sort of the lenders taking control of the world, as it were. Uh, and so, you know, that's the bankers, the Federal Reserve Bank, which is, uh, I believe, owned by other private interests. Um, do, do you see this as sort of a um, geopolitical event that's taking shape, let's say, with... Um, China, Russia on the one hand, the United States and Europe on the other? Oh, I, I think the center of power is definitely shifting. I, I would say that we are allowing it to happen by our policies, and I do think that you know, if we can get some, I, get, I call them responsible people in government, then that could be reversed, uh, and it could be another American century. Not that we want to be an empire, but we definitely want to be safe and secure and, and prosperous. Um, but I, you know, uh, it, it, they're more capitalist in Russia than we are now. Mm-hmm. I mean, their tax rate is twenty twenty percent. As long as you don't bother the government, I mean, you know, they're corrupt. Let's, you know, it's the mob rule, but. If you don't bother them, you can do whatever you want. You can be as capitalistic as you want. And, you know, they just don't understand why we're giving so much power to the state. And because they say, look, it, it almost destroyed us. Why are you doing that? It doesn't work. And that's the real shift I see is really a shift in philosophy and way of doing things. And that the result of that is a change of power monetarily, politically, militarily. Why are we doing this? You know, it had Robert Prechter on this show some time ago, and I raised the question to him. I said, if we had not, if Nixon had not taken us off the gold standard in 1971, would we have gotten into this kind of a mess that we're in right now? And he said, no, but actually Nixon didn't have a choice. Nixon didn't have a choice, he maintained, because the pressures of society were pushing him towards that policy that people wanted to have an easier life. They didn't want to have to be... Uh, governed by the disciplines of a gold standard that would tell you that you had to work for a living, you had to earn, you had to save, you had to, uh, you know, you, you had to earn your way, that you could have your cake today and, and eat it too and not have to worry about the future. That certainly is, it seems to me, a big lie that has been proposed. I don't think the American people understand what they are losing with this sort of 
government intrusion and socialism in our lives. Do you, do you think it's just ignorance on the part of the American people that allow this, that allows this to take place? I think that's the vast majority of it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, that's why I wrote the book. It's really to try to get the message out there and, and be a little bit tricky, if you will, because it is entertaining and it's a novel, but I wanted people to, you know, understand some things. And that is, yes, it's ignorance. I think a lot of it has to do with our education system. You know, I can remember taking civics and high school and uh, you know I talked to my son the other day and and I said have you learned he asked me something about the legislative branch and I said haven't you learned the the three branches of government yet and he's like no oh, that's and incredible I, I was I was flabbergasted I, I couldn't believe it I was, are you kidding me and, and they're in a good school district here in Connecticut so you know that was kind of shocking to me I really think the education system is a huge part of this that uh, what uh, what grade would he be in He's in eighth grade. Eighth grade, it doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily surprise me because I've I've seen it. It just seems to be this incredible amount of ignorance. I, I remember when I was back in uh, you know in the fifties when my eighth grade teacher, uh, you know, required us to learn the opening lines of the Declaration of Independence, and mm-hmm. I don't think that most kids even know there is a Declaration of Independence. Uh, they don't understand the three branches of government that there is um, that they are to be equal. Uh, and that they were create that we set the that our founders set government up that way to keep government from being exactly what it is right now, that is an increasingly intrusive yeah. uh, intrusive um, uh, intrusive part of our lives. Well, I, mm-hmm. I just I just uh, I can't say enough about uh, about this book. And I think you know finally, Todd, when I get a chance to read through it, um, I will I will have to have you back again. Uh, on the show to talk about of course, it because of it, it, it is so entertaining and I think um, it, it's it's history, uh, but obviously you can do things with novels that you might not feel free to do if you were if you were just you know writing an, an actual account of what's going on. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, starting uh, it, it's just it's just very interesting and I th- I think a very interesting read is called Currency. And where can people pick up a copy of this, Todd? Well, my website is ltodwood.com. You can buy anything. Well, there's links there. It's on any electronic retailer, any device. You can buy it for Apple, uh, Sony, Kobo, Nook, all that, Kindle. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's available in some stores. Uh, if they don't have it, they, any store can order it through their distributors. It will be in airports across the country May 1st. So uh, it, it's out there. You may have to, if you Google me, ltodwood, it comes up. I'm like three pages long, so you can find it. Todd, uh, before I let you go, what would you suggest to Americans? Of, of course, they should read the book, understand what's really going on. That's what this show tries to do, and that's why you're with us today. Uh, but um, but aside from that, in terms of investing, I know you're not coming here to talk about investment, uh, you know, investment analysis or talking about you know what people should really do, but. Um, we, we, I think people have to think about what they should do in light of what's going on. Do you see, we had Frank Holmes from the U.S. Uh, US Global with us last week, and Frank isn't, at least in the near term, not at all concerned about rising interest rates. But um, let's say interest rates start to rise. It certainly wouldn't be good for the stock market. Well, you know, I lived through 1994 when everybody in their safe bond portfolios uh, woke up one morning and lost 30% when interest rates started to spike. And like I said, there's a saying on the street that interest rates are low until they're not. And you don't know when that's going to happen. And I 
I am just re- really scared of the bond market right now. You know, I'm not good at day-to-day fluctuations and day trading a market, mm-hmm. but I do tend to have a a feel of when something's too high or too low, like the NASDAQ at 5,000, you know, a few years back. So uh, the bond market scares me right now. And yes, that would have consequences to the stock market. I, I get this question all the time and I just tell people, you know, buy something you can touch, whether it be real estate, commodities, whatever. I, you know, the, the, the fiat markets really frighten me right now. And gold and silver makes sense to you to own some? I sure, especially right now. You bet. And do you see the potential, though, of confiscation one day again? It was done once in the 1930s. Uh, yeah, anything's possible. You know, I, I would, you know, if you'd have talked to me five years ago, I would have not been thinking that things have happened that have happened already. I just didn't think they would happen, and they have. So, uh, yes, anything can happen. And in the way of, you know, here in New York City, we've gone through, well, you're up in Connecticut, so you would have seen mm-hmm. part of this too, but we had a horrendous hurricane here. Last year, we have a group on this show from time to time, all in one prepared which is a storefront that allows people to go and buy the sort of things that you need, whether natural disaster or, or man-made disasters, uh, food, water, energy storage, that sort of thing. I suppose that would make sense to you as well. I think it's good to be prepared. I mean, I'm not a gloom and doom, you know, the world's going to end tomorrow kind of guy, but I just, I'm, I, you know, and I haven't focused a lot on uh, the markets in general just because I'm just frightened of them right now. So, uh, you know, I've, I like to buy things. I, one thing I learned on the, in trading was you buy things when nobody else wants them. <laughs> and yeah, right now, you know, that would be real estate. It would be gold. It would be things that uh, people are just throwing out with the bathwater. That uh, are out of fashion. So that, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt about it. I want to thank you very much, Todd. If there's anything anything else you'd like to add before we conclude our discussion Well, today? I, I do have another book coming out in a couple of weeks, I hope, called oh. Sugar, and it's going to deal with energy policy, another historical fiction, oh. uh, but it's it's a, it's a shocker. So Oh, um, and it's called what? Sugar? Have... Sugar? Sh- sugar. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it's it's related to energy. So this is yes. this will really be good. I, I definitely want to uh, please let me know when that comes out, and uh, I definitely want sure. to want to get a copy of it and and have you back on to talk about that. And and when I finally get a chance to get through currency, and when I say get through it, it's not that's the wrong way of putting it because it's an easy read. It's fun. It's a fun read. I generally don't read novels. It seems like I feel like mm-hmm. I don't have time for novels. But if there's a novel mm-hmm. that really has a message that I can relate to today in terms of what life's threats and promises are today, that's what I want to read. So I think that definitely currency does that. Todd, I want to thank you very much for being with us, and I look forward to talking to you again sometime in the near future. Thanks, Jay. I enjoyed myself. I I enjoy long shows where you can really get into the weeds. Thank you. Uh, Oh, just a little bit we have. Thank you very much, uh, Todd. (laughs) I I really appreciate it. And, uh, folks, don't go away. We'll be right back after the commercial break with my next guest. Don't go away. Sandgold is an aggressive gold company operating in Manitoba, Canada, a top-ranked gold mining region. Sandgold's most recent gold discovery, the Shoreline Basalt Mining Unit, is already in production at more than 75,000 ounces per year. And Sandgold continues to pursue nearby targets within one of Manitoba's most prospective gold mining trends, the Rice Lake Gold Belt. Discover the potential at Sandgold. Trading symbol is SGRCF on the OTCQX and SGR on the Toronto Exchange. Visit our website at www.sandgold.ca. 